Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. We're checking in with Arun Pai. He's from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures today, helping us understand if regional banks may emerge as a winner in the debt showdown. Lots stowed away in those short-term U.S. Treasuries, looking anything but safe as that debt ceiling deadline looms even closer. And there's an ETF giant out there. Um, Lori Hanel is behind the biggest short-term U.S. Treasury ETF as State Street Global Advisors Chief Investment Officer. And uh, she's warned that one of the year's hottest haven trades could be about to unwind. And this could mean good news for regional banks. So we'll take a close look at regional banks today. Also, have you always wondered what exactly are those hedge funds picking this year? Well, we'll take a closer look at the Sohn HK Hedge Fund Summit that was held a couple of days ago where Chinese stock picks loomed large. So are China stocks making a comeback? And we're going to take a leaf out of Warren Buffett's book on investing today. If Buffett is bullish on Japan, should you be too? Arun, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Listen, when it comes to Warren Buffett, people looking closely always at what this legendary investor is doing. He recently told Japanese media that Berkshire Hathaway had increased its stake in several of the country's trading houses and that he had his eye on other investment opportunities as well. And that sent uh, Japan's stock index up by at least 1% the next day. So, when you look at Warren Buffett and his interest in Japan, what stands out for you? And should we be bullish on Japan as well? Yeah, great question. So, you know, when he made his first investment a while back, it made quite the ripples in uh, the investing world, uh, primarily because of the very opaque nature of the shareholding structure of Japanese companies. What I mean by that is if you actually go into reading like the various annual reports that Japanese publicly traded companies publish, mm. you'll see a lot of cross holdings between uh, companies like company X will own shares of company Y and Z. Company Z will in turn own shares of company uh, X and A. It, it was like a very, very entangled web, mm. which basically meant that external or foreign investors trying to come into this place and trying to make any changes, like any kind of, be it activist shareholders or a foreign capital coming in trying to make a difference, it was basically barred from that, right? Because all of these Japanese companies used to cross-own shares of each other, thereby leading to uh, status quo. And a lot of hedge funds, like really big ones too, uh, tried to come into the market, uh, tried to, you know, uh, because of their very, very attractive valuations, they tried to make an activist play, but that sadly did not work out because of Japanese culture, because just the way things have been going for the past, you know, hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. I think when uh, Warren Buffett made this investment into the trading houses, it was a bit different. And I think the reason for that is if you look at the business, inherent business model of a trading house, it's take advantage of really low interest rates, leverage up your balance sheet, 
and try to trade these commodities or products, which typically are on a very slim margin. But thanks to leverage, uh, you can basically exponentially increase your profit, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you take a look at this playbook, which and there are trading houses, uh, obviously, across the globe. Mm -hmm. And you take these specific trading houses in Japan, which have a huge advantage of very, very low interest rates, right? I mean, if you see where interest rates have gone across the globe, uh, with the Fed leading the charge, and we've talked about this a lot on your show previously, Japan is a little bit different, where thanks to a massive current account surplus that they pretty much always had because of uh, export strengths and just the source of confidence in the safe haven of the yen, you've had the BOJ trying to really spur inflation all the way from back in the 90s, right? And they've not been able to achieve that. So they they kept rates artificially low. They were one of the first central banks to even try to take rates negative uh, in the hope of spurring inflation. And even in this era where the globe is, where the world as a whole is going through an inflation increase, Japan is barely feeling the pinch. So you have this huge tailwind of perennially low interest rates married to a business model which can take very big advantage of that uh, thereby really uh, eking out profits, even if margins are slim in the underlying business, and you can potentially have a big winner. So when Buffett came in, uh, it made ripples. Uh, these trading houses kept generating more and more profit on the back of uh, low interest rates. I think him and Greg Abel actually flew to Japan mm. a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And Warren Buffett is 95, by the way. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm sure he flew in his own private jet and everything, <laughs> but still, <laughs> right? I mean, can you imagine you flying anywhere in the world if you're 95 years old <laughs> and worth $100 not. billion, dollars, Michelle? <laughs> I, it's got to be worth a lot of money. <laughs> But yeah, so, so I, I think that uh, brought up a lot more interest in the space. What I would advise listeners of your show, though, is to be very careful. Uh, this is a market that's not like the U.S. that is purely capital-driven uh, stakeholder management, especially in the case of shareholders, is the responsibility of the board of directors. Things work a little bit differently over there, so be very careful in what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. If you do have a macro view on the economy uh, and the country as a whole, that by all means, ETFs are the safest bet. Mm. But for individual countries, uh, just be careful given the corporate uh, structure, I would say. Do you think there's going to be a stampede of global investors into I, Japan? I think the institutional investors uh, are not going to potentially follow suit that quickly, just given the fact that so many hedge funds have been burnt in the past mm. to the point where, uh, and these are like some really marquee names, right? Like Elliott uh, Fund Management, a, a bunch of others. They, they took stakes in some really large uh, Japanese businesses, the Toshibas, the Sonys, etc., and they could not pull off any change. They tried to get their board seats done, they couldn't pull it off. So from that perspective, sadly, and this is what Warren Buffett really warns people about, you know, just because I'm investing in something doesn't mean that retail people should follow suit. Yeah. I, I think that's something to be very, very careful about. Uh, there's a huge hole. I mean, just Google activist hedge funds uh, burning their fingers in Japan, you can see all sorts of articles of how people have actually pulled out of the country. Mm -hmm. So it just pays to be a little bit cautious, I would say. Yeah, and when Berkshire Hathaway invests in something, it's typically a long-term investment, something like 10, 20 years. And some say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some hedge funds have a shorter time horizon because they're looking for volatility in that hunt for alpha or excess return. I 
Absolutely. I I mean, I cannot even stress that enough, right? As a hedge fund manager, your incentives and your goals are trying to create that alpha within typically a year Mm. so that your end of year compensation can be generated based on that. Very different from a Berkshire Hathaway. Retail investors, again, you know, as much as we all would love to say that we invest only for 10, 20 years, (laughs) suddenly the the stock price pops up or down over the next day and suddenly we start rethinking our (laughs) way of investing, right? So it it just pays to be a little bit cautious. Thank you for that nuanced approach to should we invest like Warren Buffett. Really appreciate that. Now, speaking of hedge funds, we're all very curious about how how Fed hedge funds, you know, make decisions. And recently there was this big comeback hedge fund summit over in Hong Kong uh, called the Sone HK Hedge Fund Summit. And that's where we saw um, certain sectors in China's market seemingly uh, attractive to a lot of these hedge funds. Uh, there was talk up of education. And this was surprising because we all remember China's crackdown on the education sector not too long ago. But apparently China's uh, vocational stocks, some schools, and uh, also the supply chain of chips. Uh, So China's interest in chip making was something that these hedge fund honchos at this this conference, this particular conference in Hong Kong, was talking up. What do you make of their interest in this these sectors in China? It's you know really funny you ask, but I was actually in Shanghai uh, the last four or five days, Ooh. and what was really interesting to me was land in the international airport, obviously from Singapore. And it's relatively quiet, right? Uh, So international travel has not picked up. They've just recently opened their borders. When I left and I landed back in Singapore last night, the airport was quite empty, uh, dare I say. So I think the international angle, and we're starting to see numbers that are coming out, right, where people were hoping that the borders are open. So you'll see tourism really pick up in places like Thailand and uh, Vietnam and Singapore too, for that matter. Starting to see some signs of that, but just purely based on anecdotal evidence of how busy the airport was, vis-a-vis the uh, the size of the airport, it seemed quite empty. But what was really interesting was that once I got into the city, it was a whole different ballgame. Mm. I mean, the amount of domestic tourism and spending that's happening within the country, just visually, you can see... Uh, people from all different parts of uh, China have come down to Shanghai, tourism on uh, along the Bund, shops are full, restaurants are full. It was a very, very interesting experience thinking that, you know, people are still going to be afraid of COVID. You don't know if there are going to be further lockdowns anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Everything has changed completely. There was a massive vibe. So a lot of excitement in the streets, I would say. So from the perspective of, uh, you know, this, it, it's a really famous conference that you were mentioning, the Sone conference. I think the angle with which hedge funds are looking at this is having, again, burnt their fingers quite badly when it came to education stocks and uh, gaming stocks and large tech stocks in the past. Mm. The key is you have to go along with what the government's longer term views are of how they want the society to be shaped, right? And I think that's something that Western investors really, really need to understand that China is a country that is run by the government. 
you could be literally, you know, Jack Ma, uh, who was the poster child of tech innovation in the country, multi-billionaire, et cetera, et cetera. But when push came to shove, the government had its way. And I think that's something that uh, Western investors, especially, you know, predominantly being more focused on the U.S. and Europe, Mm -hmm. where the government does not have that kind of a power, don't quite understand that dynamic, right? So when you come down to what the government wants over the next five, ten years, like what is their long-term plan and vision? Education, but not from the perspective of tuition centers, hence the vocational programs and basically any kind of program that can enhance the skills of its local population, Chips is obviously a huge thing, right? I mean, given what's happening between the U.S.-China trade wars, uh, given how most of China tech has basically been massively stifled by uh, U.S. sanctions, predominantly not enabling them to use chips from uh, TSMC uh, and or and or use technology from ASML, uh, the Dutch company, that's just basically made China look inward double down on its existing supply chains and really pump tremendous amounts of money and resources into cultivating a fully homegrown chip supply chain. Is that going to be possible? Never say never with China, obviously, given what they've (laughs) accomplished in the past relatively very short period of time, like just 30, 40 years, right? It is going to be extremely difficult, though, but that's what the government wants, and they have relatively endless amounts of capital to deploy on the back of that, right? Mm-hmm. So from that aspect, I think it would give heat to investors to really focus on what the government wants and try to follow on those uh, coattails. You know, I recently completed my CFA certificate in ESG investing, and I was stunned to see the amount of money that China is actually pumping into renewable energy. It's really one of the world leaders in this whole space. Um, so what stood out for me in terms of other Chinese stocks that hedge fund leaders at this particular famous conference we're looking at as well was renewable energy, China's renewable energy focus and what it's doing in terms of climate change. Um, Some of its plans, its hydroelectric projects, uh, uh, the Three Georges Dam, for example, a little bit controversial. But um, in terms of themes, did it stand out for you? uh, What China is doing in the climate change area, its drive in terms of renewable energy, is that an area worth looking at? You know, it's honestly been doing this for a really long time. I mean, if you think back, uh, like my dad was in the solar sector, Mm. right? And this is like 10, 15 years ago. And back in the day, uh, obviously, you know, the Western markets, the U.S., Europe, uh, setting up plants in the Philippines and Asia where there was lower cost of manufacturing, etc. Things were booming. Along came China and realized that solar is a very viable future source of uh, renewable energy. And they just pumped billions and billions of dollars into this space to the point of then becoming the world leaders in uh, solar panel and cell manufacturing by a long shot. And this is not your simple tech, uh, you know, like people, like a a garment manufacturing little workshop, right? This is a very, very high-tech, complicated uh, supply chain and machinery that's required. And China came along in the span of like under five years, became like the world's leader in the space. I think the way China approaches ESG is something a little bit different from what the US and Europe potentially can. And I think they're given a lot of stick for that, for, it, for not uh, 
but not for the right reason. At the end of the day, they, this is a country that does have like, you know, 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And a lot of people are still emerging out of poverty, right? So it's not that easy to just flick a switch, snap your fingers and completely mm. switch off all your old power, pl- uh, your, your coal powered plants yeah. and uh, all the other, you know, like basically using hydrocarbons to generate energy. So the fact that they, they, they go into technology in the renewable space, like solar, like hydroelectric stuff, as, as well as hydrogen for that matter, they go into these various verticals seeing a very, from an aspect of whether there's commercial viability or not. This is not going to be something where the government is going to go down the path of from a pure ESG-only angle. There has to be a commercial viability to it. And that's exactly what we've seen, right? But if you want mass adoption of renewable energy, it has to be at a price parity to what's out there otherwise. You can't always rely on government subsidies unless you're, say, Europe or the U.S., like richer governments, basically. So I think the uh, approach that China's taken is fantastic in this space. And this is something that the government is in another one of the verticals that the government really wants to push over the next 10, 20 years because they are cognizant of pollution having a big effect on the lives and the health of its own citizens. But it's going to take time. Mm-hmm. It, it's not got that huge history the West has uh, to suddenly go into renewables that quickly. Mm. But from an investing vertical perspective, mm-hmm. I would say most definitely like big tech, the renewable space, supply chain within chips are the three verticals that I really like. Yeah. Uh, property is definitely one that I would stay away from, just given the opaqueness or inability for me at least to understand how much leverage is actually there in the system because a lot of it is like hidden via off balance sheet entities. So stay away from property, very pro these other sectors in China. Absolutely fabulous. Was there anything else at this particular conference in terms of picks? I know Vietnam grocers were highlighted, copper firms, um, Disco Corp. No, they don't make disco balls. Uh, They're a Japanese semiconductor equipment maker. So those were some of the other picks. Anything else uh, stood out for you? Yeah, I, I think there were some uh, interesting chats about uh, how fixed income, uh, especially a couple of like sovereign bonds, mm-hmm. uh, could be quite interesting at this current moment. And, you know, I've been heavily against bonds for a really long time. But I do think, uh, and as I was mentioning it to you on, your, on, on the last show, I think a couple of weeks or a month ago also, mm-hmm. at this current juncture, uh, given where interest rates are, Given how inflation is relatively stable to petering down and there are concerns about uh, future economic growth, uh, I do think a certain percentage allocation of one's portfolio into fixed income instruments could be quite interesting. So from that perspective, uh, you know, looking at a couple of, again, relatively higher grade credit. Uh, personally looking at some uh, oil and gas companies who have some interesting uh, three-year, five-year paper uh, that's out there, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a couple of interesting sovereign bonds that are there too. All right, let's switch our attention to banks in the U.S. Uh, not long ago, there were concerns that uh, mid-sized U.S. banks were spooking investors. Um, the concerns about those banks were really scaring investors. Today, it looks like investors are piling back into these financial institutions. So we have Jefferies, the research house. It has a buy call on Western Alliance Bangkok and its shares surged 10% overnight. So uh, what's behind this renewed confidence in these banks? 
Yeah, so I mean, Western Alliance very specifically, they came out with uh, uh, like not their earnings, but just an update on their deposit base uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago, wherein their deposits basically grew by more than $2 billion uh, in the last three months. And I think that was something that really alleviated a lot of pressure wherein uh, Wall Street investors were wondering, will the continuous cash train keep happening from these regional banks, right? And what th- this news basically came about saying, look, at, at least from our perspective, what we are seeing using from our own brand, from our own balance sheet, we have seen an influx of investors coming in. So I, I you know, finance lending, balance sheet lending uh, companies, it's such a trust and relationship-driven business. And once the trust goes, it becomes very, very difficult to bring it back. So I think what they're going to see in this space is a lot more consolidation uh, with the much larger banks that are obviously there. Mm -hmm. But even within the regional space, there could be some standout winners. And it's not just Western Alliance, right? I mean, if you look at uh, PacWest Bancorp, it spiked like close to 20%. Uh, and even like other names that people might not have heard of, uh, Comerica, Zion's Bancorp, mm. within the regional banks, these are some of the larger, better named ones. And it seems like capital is, or, or you know, one's savings or one's uh, money that they've earned, deposits are being taken out of regional banks that they're slightly more unsure of, either going to obviously the very large banks or if the relationship and the trust is there with some of the larger regional banks, money is going over there. So I, I think that's the kind of consolidation that we'll be seeing across the financial sector over here. So we've, you know, taking a step back uh, and like viewing the space, given the fact that, uh, you know, the, the whole debt ceiling is uh, potentially is it still uncertain, might or might not happen. Rates are finally coming to a pause right now. Uh, by the looks of it, inflation seems to be coming off a little bit more. Uh, overall, I feel the banking sector with these relatively, uh, I, I should say, used to be strong headwinds, and now they're kind of tapering off. I would like to think that where the valuations have kind of li- la- landed up right now, it could be quite an interesting space to put some more money in. Personally, mm. I'm looking at more of the uh, larger banks in the U.S., uh, as interesting places to park capital. So interesting. Michael Burry apparently was scooping up bank stocks during the turmoil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't remember reading about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> interesting. Well, thank you as always, Arun. Terrific insights and wonderful speaking with you. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks as always for having me. Arun Pai from the investments team of Monks Hill Ventures joining us live here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.